You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It is Tuesday, September the 6th. Still quite warm here in TWM for the time of the year, but it's certainly got a humid feeling to it. And there was a good thunderstorm or two overnight just to freshen things up. And talking about the benefits of being freshened up, we're going to see Homeless Songs this weekend for the first time since that romp in the Irish 1000 Guineas earlier in the season. We've missed her, but we could be getting a right load more of her, as trainer Dermot Weld has been telling me this morning. This is what he had to say. She won the Irish 1000 Guineas very impressively. And as you know, we didn't go to Royal Ascot because she doesn't fire on firm ground. And she had a nice summer break. And this is the start back of what hopefully will be a long autumn campaign that could well go all the way to the Breeders' Cup. You've been very clear about about ground with her. Why is it, why is it such an issue with her? Well, with this particular filly, it's a little bit to do with her confirmation. And that is the reason. To be quite, we could talk for a long time about it, but it is to do with her own personal confirmation that the way she hits the ground, I've no doubt that she's much better and will adapt better when there's an ease in the surface. She does not require heavy ground, uh, far from it, because that would only blunt her speed, but she has to have a nice ease in the ground. So, so it's more to do with keeping her structurally in one piece than it is to do with soft ground. Yeah. That's that's it in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, that, I'm very interested that this is just the start, potentially, at the weekend of a long autumn campaign. Um, the Breeders' Cup, you sometimes get a dig in the ground at Keeneland. We didn't when we went there in, in 2020 when you won, of course, the, the big race with, with Tanawa. Again, is that going to dictate that, or is there anything different about the American tracks that would, would help in that respect? Oh, not really. Look, this is these sort of fillies, I tend to wait for the autumn with them. And with Tanawa, you know, we won three group, two group ones and a group grade one in, in the autumn by waiting. And um, as I said, this is really, as I said, just the start of our campaign. Uh, I'm pleased with Homeless Songs. Her work has been good. Obviously, I expect her to progress and improve from uh, Saturday's race. Uh, Dermot, your your own high standards have led everyone to observe that this season has not been a stellar one numerically or by percentage, but you've, you've had three winners from your last four runners. Is that a corner being turned or do we need to read anything into that? No, I don't think so. I think we have a much smaller team of horses. I think this particular year I knew coming into it that a lot of our three-year-olds were very average. Uh, I didn't, you know, with, the, with, with a couple of exceptions, uh, I knew that the three-year-olds were a weak team, to be quite honest with you. And just to finish where we started, um, if if you have a, a weakish three-year-old team, this filly is clearly head and shoulders above all of them. Um, how highly in your mind does she rank with some of the very best you've trained? I think she can. I think she, on her ground, whenever it's right for her, she's right right up with the best you know she's i don't like comparing different generations but she's a very talented filly 
Dermot Weld, richly looking forward to bringing back homeless songs in the Matron Stakes at Leopardstown on Saturday afternoon on the same card as the eagerly anticipated Irish Champion Stakes. But she is, as I said, homeless songs, one of the box office lots this weekend. Lee Motta said, a senior writer from the Racing Post, how encouraged were you by what you heard there? How we've missed her? Uh, I thought it was extremely encouraging, Nick, as you said in the interview with Dermot, the memory of the Irish 1000 guineas tour de force has faded so it's extremely good news to learn that what we what we might get during the the autumn uh, are repeated sightings of homeless songs it'll be a proper test as well because if we do get saffron beach in the matron stakes she will be a fierce rival and will provide a very good barometer for where homeless songs is now and might be in the future. But as we know, the matron stakes is just one of many delectable dishes on a sensational weekend across Britain, Ireland and France. If I was to ask you the the top three horses you're looking forward to seeing this weekend outside homeless songs, what would they be? <laughs> well, a good question. Okay, well, the first one I would say is obvious, Vedeni. Um, he was amazing in the Prix du Jockey Club, not not as visually stunning in the Coral Eclipse, but it was still a, a super performance there. Um, he heads to the Irish Champion Stakes, which looks a deep Irish Champion Stakes, as the legitimate favourite. There was just the hint from Christophe Soumillon he might yet be uh, an art contender, although their connections were adamant at Sandan, he was a 10 verlong horse. So I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Vedeni. I am very interested to see what New London can do in the St. Ledger. I don't think it's a particularly strong St. Ledger. In fact, it looks quite a weak St. Ledger. But the manner of his victories at Newmarket and Goodwood suggested that he might yet emerge as a proper middle distance star. And then, Nick, if you'll allow me to say three and four, because they're sort of linked. Of course. You will know You will know from previous conversations on this pod uh, the uh, affection I have for Very Elegant. Um, she is a horse um, I've adored for a long time, um, both for uh, personal punting reasons and just because I love a really good race mare. And I thought her performance in the Melbourne Cup was stunning. I didn't think there was a huge amount of encouragement in her run at Deauville, but I, I really hope she can do better uh, on Sunday at Longshore on Art Trials Day. Sounds like she will go for uh, the foie as opposed to the Vermeer. Um, but I also would mention a horse called Point King of Joseph O'Brien's. Uh, if Joseph O'Brien has a Melbourne Cup horse this year, it's like to be Point King, an unexposed three-year-old. He goes in the Group 3 mile and a half race at Leopardstown on Saturday. I am very interested to see what he can do. And I will pick a, a trio of my own. I can't wait to see how Hascoy gets on in the in the St. Ledger, see if she's up to it. I was really quite intrigued in the, the Flying Childers Stakes on Friday, a Group 2 race for two-year-olds, to see the winner of the Malcolm Stakes at, at Goodwood, Trillium, taking on the Platinum Queen. I think Trillium might want six or seven furlongs in time, but they're keeping her at five. I think she's a very, very talented filly. And the other horse I was I was really excited about was Onesto, because I think he's flying slightly under the radar in the Irish Champion Stakes. Very impressed with him in the Grand Prix de Paris. And with that in mind, I put a call into his Chantilly-based trainer, Fabrice Chappé, to ask him how the horse had been training in the lead-up to the big day. 
Good morning. Uh, I'm real happy. He had a bit of a break after after the Grand Prix Paris uh, on the 14th of July. Uh, he's been getting ready since uh, mid-August. Uh, very happy. He walks well. He looks well. So I'm sure he's going to run well. Uh, it's not going to be the easiest race, of course. But uh... Tell me a little bit about where you see your horse in relation to Vedeni. Obviously, he was behind him in the Prix de Jockey Club, but you didn't have much luck that day. How close do you think they are in terms of ability? Well, uh, no, he had a terrible race in the French Derby, indeed. Uh, you know, he had to stay very far behind. He, you know, finished very well. So, you know, uh, we'll see. We'll see on Saturday in Ireland. I'm sure they're quite close to each other. I would say. Uh, and tell me about what you believe is the optimum distance for Ernesto. He's obviously won over over a mile and a half. He's he's dropping back in distance. What do you believe is his ideal race condition? I have no worry for. No worry for that. I mean, you know, we saw one more time in the French Derby that it could be quite competitive going, you know, a mile and a quarter or 2001. Uh, I think he can do any, anything between a mile and a quarter and a mile and a half. I'm sure he would not mind, you know, a good to soft ground. Uh, you know, as, as long as, as it's not extreme, I'm not, I'm not over worried for the ground. Uh, you know, it should be good on Saturday in Ireland. So not to worry at this stage. And in your mind, if he runs well on Saturday, is, is the next, will the next step be the arc? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, as you were saying, he's been winning in Longchamp and going a man and a half. Uh, saying that, you know, these two races are, are three weeks apart. So, you know, we have to see how he runs to, uh, to start with in Ireland. And then we have to see how he comes out of that. But, you know, he, you know, he could be the next target, of course. He's, he's definitely a proper trio, you know, especially going a mile and a quarter, yeah. Ah, so one step at a time for Ernesto, and we'll find out this weekend, Lee. Really, how just how unlucky he was in the in the Prix de Jockey Club, and where he would have finished in relation to Vedeni had he not had this the one of Europe's trips from hell this year. Yeah, and and you you, you do get those in that race. Um, it, that's not necessarily unusual. Um, I thought he was. Um, I, I really liked the way he won the Grand Prix de Paris. Um, he he looked to me like a horse who was to an extent still a work in progress he took a while to hit top gear but when he did hit top gear he was well on top at the end again i'm not sure how strong the grand prix de paris it was um and i do wonder whether he will prove to be a better horse over a mile and a half than a mile and a quarter but he's definitely still a three-year-old who potentially is a fair bit better than we've seen on the race course so far and if he does go to the arc, on what we're hearing yesterday, if the ground is good, he will face not only Verdeni potentially, but very probably Baid. Baid is still number one with this week's release of the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Horse Rankings. Flightline has pounded up the table to second, and he's right on the heels points-wise behind Baid as well. And you'd think, well, so dominant was his performance, why isn't Flightline at the top? Well, everything I've learned from James Willoughby about the Thoroughbred Racing commentary rankings uh, gives me a couple of answers to that. First is that TRC rankings take stock of how easy it is to win by huge margins on dirt and turf, relatively speaking, even though Flightline's winning margin in a grade one in that time was pretty spectacular by any standards and it'll also take stock of repeated efforts longevity of the horse and proof that the horse can repeat those efforts time in and time out over a period of time 
Now, the machine is being convinced by Flightline, having been slow initially to, to be so, but it remains more convinced, just marginally, by the overall merit of the career of Baid. That could all change, of course, if Baid doesn't win the arc or scrambles home in the arc or the calibre of the opposition is not that high and Flightline does another 15 to 20 length demolition job over even better rivals in the Breeders' Cup Classic. And it'll be fascinating as we build through the season to see which of those horses comes out number one in the TRC rankings. But as of today, it's won by Eid, Flightline 2. I would not look on Bayid in any way in a negative sense uh, if he wasn't able to match Flightline's figure. Um, I do wonder if at some point we're going to be talking about these two horses as a, an Arkle and Flying Bolt of, of their era. And if Bayid, in terms of rankings and ratings, turns out to be the Flying Bolt to Bayid's Arkle, that doesn't in any way confer any sort of criticism or, or, or lack of respect to, to Bayid. I think they're two wonderful, wonderful racehorses. We're blessed to have them at the same time. I was thinking again about Flightline's performance, Nick, uh, on, on Saturday or the early hours of Sunday morning here. And we've all drawn those parallels with Secretariat's Belmont. Something else occurred to me as well. I thought that move around the, the home bend at Del Mar, for me, uh, had echoes of what Frankel did in that Royal Lodge Stakes as a juvenile, that that amazing move that Frankel made there, going into the home bend at Ascot, was that moment I thought that this is a thoroughbred who is potentially different to a normal member of the species, just something out of the ordinary. And I think what what Flightline did around that bend did have echoes of that. They're never going to meet. We can argue until Kingdom Come, which is is the better horse. There'll never be a definitive answer as such. Let's just hope that they can both bow out this year anyway um, in the way we want, want them to because we still hope that we might see Flightline next year. With that in mind, I wanted to know what it took to produce a horse of Flightline's quality. And I've been speaking to his breeder, Jane Lyon, and have asked her how she feels. And she, with her late husband, Frank, has been a a breeder and consigner of great note in Kentucky through the last two decades, produced any number of good horses. I asked her how she felt to, to be responsible for producing this one. I'm still in awe of that horse and in awe of the fact that he was actually uh, bred here, born here, raised here. I consider the whole experience not an accomplishment of mine, even though... I have the greatest group of people working with me anyone could ever hope for. But I honestly believe a horse like this is a gift. It's not something you can ever expect. But this colt, when he was born, he was a very nice colt all along. One of those that, that you kind of say, wow, that's, you know, he might be something. But you don't imagine he could be this. I cannot comprehend the fact that he has done what he's done. Uh, and when you when you sold Flightline, or when Flightline was was put through the ring at the at the Saratoga Select Sale in in New York as a as a yearling, um, he made uh, was it a million dollars he made? It was a million dollars, and I did. I was asked 
shortly before he was sold to if I would consider staying in for a leg, and um, I did. And now that seems like the best idea I ever, <laughs> ever had. And this this must be something that happens quite a lot when you're selling a lot of horses and you're about to embark on the the marathon of of the Keeneland sale. You know, it must happen to you a lot as a as a as a consigner. Well, would you stay in for a little bit of this and a bit of that and a lot of that and a half of that and a quarter of this? What made you say, yeah, I I want to stay in here? Well, the truth is, this was the first time I had done it. Uh, I normally did not stay in on horses um my husband was a wonderful businessman who wasn't particularly fond of partners he figured if you could have a horse and you could afford it then you didn't need a partner (laughs) and so so it actually was the first time i did take a leg of a horse i guess it was the excitement of the moment i guess it was reaching out for something a little different um, in trying to find my way in this business. So he he went to John Sadler. He started training in California. He didn't run as a two-year-old. I look back now at some of the pronouncements that were made about him when all he'd really done was win a maiden or, or win an allowance race. It, it was clearly apparent fairly early on to, to those closest to him that he, he was... He was freakish in his in his level of ability. What were you thinking when you were getting these reports from from the West? Well, I wasn't seeing him at that time. Uh, I was just getting reports, and honestly, I don't know that I would have appreciated what they were seeing at the time, because I'm the first one to tell you that. I can look at a horse and I see him with my heart, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm seeing what he actually is and what he's actually capable of. I think I saw it for the first time when he was in the paddock on Saturday. He walked out there and the way he stood, the way he looked at everything, it was as if he was seeing his domain and and that he was in in total control of everything around him. Could you enjoy the day? Oh, no. (laughs) No. I was a total nervous wreck because he had, I I kept thinking, does this boy know how much weight he has on his shoulders today? Because people were saying, well, he hasn't proven himself and we don't know if he can go the distance and all these things. All I could think of and all I ever think of when a horse enters a gate is please come home safe. When I saw him make his move, I I mean, tears were streaming so badly that I thought I won't be able to make it down to the, if he wins this, I won't be able to make it down to the winner's circle. Um, I was so overwhelmed with emotion. When you look back on on everything you've done in in thoroughbred breeding and what you and your you and your husband created um did it did it make you understand why you'd begun this journey in the first place this journey was always a dream um from the time i was a a young girl and it was not my husband's dream but he allowed me to live my dream and um, the love that 
that took is what drives me now. What do you think he would think of this? <laughs> I was thinking about that today, and he was probably, he would have probably been thinking was, well, why'd you sell any of him? I, j I really don't know. I do know that one of the biggest joys of my life was when Frank and I watched American Pharaoh run all three legs and win the Triple Crown because he, he then had a taste of the highest of the high and what it could be. And he always liked to be on top. He always liked to be the best at what he did. And we had purchased Little Princess Emma the year before Pharaoh's year. And it was the first time, I think, that he, he saw and could be part of all the excitement and all the pride and all everything of, of being at the top. And um, unfortunately, as, as everyone knows, that was his last year. And, and he passed away one week after the Breeders' Cup. And I think he would be very excited right now. In terms of in terms of what this horse means to to a wider public, I I was very struck that Costaronis in December of 2021 said, "I feel this is going to be America's horse," and he didn't even have a graded stake to his name at that point. That's a that's a big call, but it's proved an absolutely accurate call. How how aware are you, or how? How much does it mean to you that this is a horse that could have a very profound effect on on the popularity and the appeal of the sport as a whole? Well, actually, one of the greatest blessings to me uh, in <clears throat> having this horse and making the decision to stay in is getting to know and be partners with Costa Horonis and Stephanie and his brother, they are absolutely, unbelievably wonderful people. And I suspect that Costa was there every day when Flightline went out. And he saw what I wasn't able to see being back here in Kentucky. And he probably knew what he had long before I could have dreamed it. He's delivered a performance that will live long in everybody's memory. Thanks so much, Jane. You're very welcome. Thank you for calling. Jane Lyon there, the breeder of Flightline. Lee Mottishead is still with me. Lee, just talking a little about what's been in the in the news lately and something you've been focusing on quite a bit, the, the, the general clamour for rules to adapt in order for incidents of serious and potentially dangerous interference to come down has been has been growing. And there's just a general sense of disquiet around around the senior members of the weighing room, it seems, as, as, as to how races are being played out. This is nothing new. No, it's not nothing. It's not, it's not, it's not a new thing, but I think it is significant, particularly uh, when you contextualise it um, against the fact that the BHA has been very open in recent weeks in saying that they are going to look at the, the penalties for a range of offences including interference. And if we have a situation whereby there is a consensus view with senior members of the weighing room that they wish 
to be uh, punished more severely for serious transgressions. That should make it easier for the BHA to actually do something on this one. And certainly that was the impression that we got from Paul Hannigan when he spoke in a Racing Post column on Monday. Paul had been in touch straight after the, the Ascot race and the 10-day ban he got for his ride, his winning ride on the Riddlet in the Norfolk Stakes, saying he wanted to talk about the wider issue. He then couldn't really do that until the, the appeal process was completed. But it was Paul who wanted to speak. He wasn't chased to speak. He wanted to speak. And I thought the points he made were very interesting. He described that as the biggest mistake of his 24-year career, that ride in in the Norfolk Stakes, but again, he said, would he have made that mistake had he been riding in an environment where similar transgressions, similar uh, examples of riders causing interference to other horses in races was punished more severely? He said stewarding at the moment is inconsistent. He said he wants to see bans increased and potentially prize money removed from jockeys who commit those offences as they are for whip offences. And he also spoke quite interestingly about feeling that apprentices potentially are now particularly guilty of placing themselves and others in danger in races and that the modern apprentice is imbued with unhealthy levels of arrogance and cockiness that is not good for the weighing ring, which he said the atmosphere has changed in recent years and now you would get many more arguments in weighing rings than we had in the past. Racing Post spoke to Ben Curtis and Martin Dwyer yesterday to get their reaction to what Paul Hannigan has said and they were basically in agreement with, with Paul. And on the interesting subject of um, apprentices, Ben Curtis used the phrase with the majority of the young lads, if you do say something to them, you may as well be talking to the wall, which is an extremely strong statement and does suggest that among senior riders, there is some discontent towards the younger members of the uh, the weighing room. Well, with that in mind, I've been talking to John Reed, multiple classic winning rider and latterly a jockey coach to the likes of Rod Hornby and very promising apprentice Reese Clutterbuck. I asked him what he felt about some of the sentiments of the senior jockeys now. You know, it's become a little bit muddy water, as far as I can see, over the last few years. Um, you know, it seems to be okay if you win, as long as you haven't killed somebody. You know, I watch races now, and sometimes I go, that, that's a definite out. And yet, it doesn't happen, or that's a definite winner, and they get chucked out. You know, I always thought I was a good enough judge of what's right and what's wrong, and what horses would stay in and what, what horses would get knocked out. But at the moment, my judgment's gone. Um, because I, I can't really read uh, between the lines what they're what the uh, the way they interpret the rules. There's also been some points made in in the last few days by by Martin Dwyer and others about um, younger riders in the weighing room not really taking heed of what the the older jockeys advise them or say. What's your what's your reading of, of that um, that assessment? Yeah, I sometimes hear that, uh, but. I heard that back in my day as well. Um, so that hasn't changed because young people are brave and, and and sometimes a little bit wild and they haven't had any falls and they get a bit smarter after a while. But so it is sometimes young kids that, uh, and that are riding that don't know uh, that they're in danger and they don't know uh, how to avoid it. Um, and that is a problem. But that's always been a problem. I mean, when you were right, when I was riding, 
um, I always watched out for apprentices because you're never quite sure what they're going to do. Um, and sometimes that's just, um, you know, ignorance. Uh, and not ignorance, but lack of lack of understanding what, what they're doing and what it'll cause behind. So I, I think the group, I mean, very quickly grow out of that because if, you, if you're going to survive, you have to. Um, but it, was it any worse than it was back then? I don't know, except I watch quite a lot of races, especially around the old weather, and it looks a bit... Uh, they can look a bit rough sometimes in races because it's tight and around there it's probably worse than, than, than many other places it's very tight racing and very closely handed, handicapped horses So, John Reed there with some interesting thoughts on whether things have changed or whether things are broadly speaking the same as, they, the same as they've always been uh, Lee, one thing that has changed is that we've now got a new Prime Minister or we're about to have a new Prime Minister sworn in. At least we know that it's going to be Liz Truss, which is not a great surprise to anybody. Uh, we've been speaking a little bit on this podcast over the last few months about how a Truss administration might change things for, for racing. We spoke yesterday about a new appointment at the BHA of a, a former press officer to Liz Truss taking over the, the reins as the BHA's communications director. So yeah, racing quite close to the centre of power at the, at the moment, at an important time. The new Prime Minister's intro is so bulging with hugely pressing issues that the relative importance of gambling legislation is right down towards the bottom of that order of priority. So whether we will see uh, this gambling white paper is I suppose, debatable. And even if we are going to see it, when we'll see it is questionable. You also have to point out that She's likely to have at most two years, just over two years in office before a general election. How quickly can she get things done anyway? So the, the, there are those points. In terms of the wider shape of this government, we um, have had confirmation this morning while we've been talking that the culture secretary, Nadine Doris, has resigned from the government and won't be continuing in government. She had repeatedly made clear her enthusiasm for the white paper. And as culture secretary, she would have been the one that would have advanced it through parliament. The fact she won't be remaining in government, I think is therefore good news for the racing and gambling industries and indeed for culture. Um, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, the former conservative leader, he has been one of the very strongest critics of bookmakers and advocates for serious gambling uh, reform. There have been suggestions that he might return to government. The latest rumours are that he's maybe miffed at the, the level of departments he was offered and therefore he might not be going back into government. Again, I think if he doesn't, that would probably be deemed to be good news for racing and betting. And I think it certainly is good news for racing and betting that the BHA has been able to make an appointment of someone with the political gravitas of Greg Swift, someone I don't know, uh, but someone who um, leaves now his role as head of news and um, press secretary for Liz Trust, the foreign secretary. He'd previously worked in um, the department charged with uh, United Kingdom leaving the, the European Union. He's worked for Theresa May before that. He's unusually an overtly political appointment. Um, generally, you don't see someone who is so political um, entering a racing governance role like this, more political than anyone I've, I can ever 
think of. Um, and also, uh, he was a Daily Express journalist for 20 years before that. So as David Gates was saying yesterday, he, he understands the media. And as a, a Daily Express journalist, Nick, of almost 20 years, I think we can almost certainly expect an imminent Group One upgrade for the Princess of Wales' stakes. All right, it's Tuesday, and you know what the deal is on Tuesday. Every Tuesday, we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their global stallion app, wonderful online resource, and, of course, their stallion book, in which you will find those housed at Mickley Stud in Shropshire, which is the home and brainchild of Richard Kent, who joins me now. And it's always good to catch up with a busy man. Uh, Richard is busy because he is selling today at the Somerville Tattersall sale in the heart of Newmarket. Uh, Richard, good morning. Um, thanks for talking to me. Just, just tell us, for, just tell us for you where this journey all started. Well, I come from a farm in County Cork, um, about three miles from Ratbury. My father bred some very good horses, and um, we always kept um, ten or fifteen mares and, and a lot of cattle and sheep. And um, so we grew up. Um, we grew up in a in a very agricultural background, um, with ponies and horses from a very early age. What did you learn off your father? What what enabled him to breed good horses? Um, to get up early in the morning. We came from a big family, and um, it was always a big staff, so everyone had to do their own pieces, their own bits and pieces. So getting up was never a problem, and that was the most important thing. And um, he always said that um, he's like just to go to bed and get up in different days. And um, um, so it's just basically that: get up early, respect your animals, and um, and if you respect the animals, then They'll, they'll give you the respect back in time. Yeah, we spoke yesterday and I said, I'll, I'll ring you early, Richard. I'll ring you at eight. And you said, that's lunchtime. That's <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, I got up at five this morning to start getting the, the lads round up. And it was like Piccadilly Circus in here at six o'clock. But it's great to see an industry where there's so many people here this morning at six o'clock. Everyone's smiling in their faces. The sun is shining, which helps. But these people have a massive passion for what they do. Now, anybody knows that, that starting a stud is, is, is difficult, it's hard work, you need to be very dedicated, and to make money out of it is even harder. To stand stallions, while well, a whole different ball game altogether, what, what prompted you to get into the stallion business? I worked for Liam Cashman in, um, in Ratbury, and um, he was like a fairy godfather to me. I, I idolised him from a very young age, and um, most of these early stallions were syndicated. My father was involved in them, and um, so... When I, was, when I started in Ratbury, Liam and Catherine were milking cows and um, he just had a massive passion for horses, farming, agriculture and country life. So then um, two years later, I ran Glenview for him for a year. Um, then I went to Australia to another farmer. He had some stallions out there for six months before I came back and um, I, I started off in Hellshaw Grange. My um, ex-wife, Rachel, and um, her family owned it and the farm is in receivership and we took it over and got it going and um, built it up and we had Karinga Bay. Um, we bought him as, as a 14-year-old horse. He was getting good results and he did very well and your, your mum was a big fan of his. Um, and then we had, um, he was champion sire. Then we had Overbury, who was a very good sire for us and um, he was the first and only English valiant ever sire at Cheltenham Bumper. So we're done from there and... Um, we had a thriving business, really, with our national stallions and selling national unfolds to Ireland. Um, Tom Costley used to come to see me every year, and the sons would come. We would sell probably 25, 35 folds a year to Ireland. But then 2009, when I had a crash in Ireland, um, that fell off the wall. And um, at this stage, I was after getting a divorce, and I'd uh, bought Mickley with Claire and partner. And um, 
we've got that going and we realised that um, keeping these na- too many of these national hunt horses and um, while it was a great passion it was very hard to make a living from it and so through Angus Gold we got um, Hiras and he did well for us well, he did well and got lovely horses but they just um, they sold well at the start but they weren't precocious enough at all ready to make a living out of them and um, well a commercial living for a commercial stallion in England so we moved him on we had Captain George he was leading first season sir he was a lovely horse but again um, the fashion wagon of, uh, of, of breeding commercial horses he, he went abroad as well well, stallions come and stallions go, Richard, as you say, but you're putting your hopes now very much on Massart, who's got a beautiful pedigree, again, a, a Shadwell horse. Just tell me a little bit about him and, and why you liked him. He's a lovely horse and was always a big fan of Theophilio and who he was by. And I was an acclamation mare. He's a big, scopy horse, so we kind of knew from the word go that we would struggle to get very early type two-year-olds. But um, he's actually done well and he had two-year-old, uh, he's, he had two, two-year-old winners in May and um, he's now at six two-year-old winners from, I think, about maybe 15, 16 runners. Um, the one horse has been sold to America. He's running in a, in a great three in um, Del Mar League on Saturday night. Um, and he was out from mare that was rated in her 40s. So the stallion obviously improved her, so that's great. He's yearling sold very well in Doncaster. They weren't out of, out of blue-blooded mares or anything, but they sold well. And, and Richard, you, you've you've had a variety of stallions. You said jumpers, now flat stallions, very fast horses to to a, a, effectively a miler with a, a miling pedigree like like Massard. You do you have a philosophy as to what you like in a horse, or are you the ultimate opportunist? No, no, I have to like the temperament. Um, the temperament is the most important thing, in my opinion, because as we're getting shorter of staff and there's less people coming into our industry. We have to have a horse that's workable and that everybody can work with him. And, and I think it is the secret going forward, you know, um, because nobody wants to get people hurt and, you know, people don't want to ride um, nappy horses. So the temperament is the first thing. Um, and while we had masks that he was a scopey horse and we knew he probably wouldn't get the very early type two-year-olds, we, um, we then went away last year and we've been looking them. Um, looking out for a more precocious horse. I sat down with Roger and Tony O'Callan one night and after book three and they persuaded me that I should be buying a son of Kodiak and we had a breeding right in Nardad and we'd send him 10 mares last year and he's obviously done incredibly well and um, and looks like a stallion with a massive future. So we went and bought, um, you better believe it, um, on, on Roger and Tony's advice really um, and I'm very grateful to him for giving me the push to do it. Um, and he's a lovely horse by Kodiak, out of much of the mare, and he was a very fast two-year-old. Um, when the Flying Childers, um, when was third in the Breeders' Cup to Golden Pal, who was going to be the champion sprinter this year, was missing the break. So, but nice, kind horse, precocious early type two-year-old, and he's covered a hundred mares this year, so he's been very well received. So. Um, Richard, you you're selling five yearlings this week. I'm interested to know from your perspective. What needs to happen this week for it to be a good week for, for Richard Kent and Mickley Studd? We don't get any time to read the papers, unfortunately, um, but we keep horses for a lot of very clever business people. So I asked, uh, in conversations, you're always asking what's happening. And everyone was saying it was going to be a doom and gloom autumn, energy, um, inflation, all that kind of stuff. And it's all a bit, like a little bit double dutch to us because we don't read it very much. But anyway, so we went to Doncaster expecting the worst and it was the most incredible sale 
with um, an incredible amount of people that wanted to buy horses. And since Downcast, we've actually sold another three yearlings privately. And we, we sold a jumping foal on Saturday to go to Ireland. Um, so here for the last three days, I only came down last night because we're busy on the farm and my son Finbar was looking after the, after the job. But they haven't been in the stable all any time. Um, he sent off one of the lads yesterday to get some water and he came back with Red Bull and um, because they were just, um, they said they'd never have been as busy, 90 shows for most of those yearlings. And that's like something you'd normally see in book two for a very a very fancy horse. So it's the, the, the interest in buying horses at the moment is absolutely incredible and it goes against what everybody else tells us should be happening. Um, so it's great. I think the, the industry is in a good place. This is a new sale that Patterson started a few years ago in Ascot. And um, in the first year of the sale, we took a filly there by Cable Bay. And um, she, she she just looked another another yearling, um, you know, growing up. And she was out of a 72-rated um, winner in Sutton. And um, anyway, while I was there for the three days, that this filly, well, she wasn't dead perfect. In, 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 nothing's perfect. I thought, something about her and I rang her owner up and he was away on holidays and I said I don't think we should sell this filly unless she makes 20 grand so he said fine and we bought it in at 15 and that turned out to be a filly called Liberty Beach um, who was a marvellous filly for the farm and she went down to um, um, to win, win first time out win the Dragon Stakes the Malcolm second in in, in, um, in York and um, then get placed in the Pride Labby the King Stand and She's now in Fort Frankel and, and living on the farm. So I'd have never thought five years ago we'd have a mare in Fort Frankel, you know. Um, so that's marvellous. And one that couldn't make 15 grand as a yearling. Um, so that was one of the early types of horses they picked out for the sale. And last year they did very well. They had Bradshaw and Eddie's boy. So it's um, it's a sale that people are looking for that Royal Ascot type two-year-old. This is where they have to come, really. And um, today there's over 300 yearlings. Um, so we put in what we talk about is our most precocious yearlings and our first lot in is lot number seven and um, the filly by Ivana Gray and we bred Ivana Gray um, with late Lady Longsail and um, she said to me her dream was to put speed into the Galileo line and I uh, thought you're, you're a great lady if you can do that and it was her own mare that she raced with Peter Macon called Blanc de Shane by Dark Angel anyway she did it and um, Ivana Gray was a very precocious two-year-old of a group one winner and um, but what he's done is phenomenal to get 40 odd two-year-old winners and 13 black type horses so we're really proud to be involved in in in, in part of breeding him and um and again he's you know going back to master i mean um Ivana gray is by is by Ivana gold is by teofilio so that was another factor that encouraged us to get him but anyway so she's um out of that lady longsale race race called peach melba with mark johnson and she won five times as a three-year-old including a listed race in germany at the end of the year so she was a beautiful mare and um lady longsale had bred her dam and her granddam so her son charles is continuing on on on, on his mum's dream and um and supporting Mickey with these mares and we've an arrangement a week at half the folds for keeping them and um for doing our work so it's worked out very well for 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 both of us for the last 15 or 20 years and to breed those kind of horses and um and that's what you dream of so she's she's the first one in and um she's been very popular and um um she's exactly what people come to the sale looking for um and she's um I hope she'll, she'll make plenty of money. And then we have another horse, or another mare that I bought for Lady Longsail called Delizia. And she won the Mary Gate as a two-year-old. She won um, first time out in Wolverhampton on Grand National Day. So she was an early type two-year-old again by Dark Angel. 
and she um she he, this this course is by showcasing and it's um a full show with Brisbane Manor Stutt and um he's he's a very sharp horse and he's been very popular and and we've a filly by Ectidar who's another Shadwell horse, the half brother to Massat, out of called Country Man two and a half thousand and um we sent her to Mimas two years ago. Well, I didn't know what we sent it. We sent it to Tally Hall because I owed Roger to send him a Mary Puss and folds off me and I said, cover whatever you want, you know. And when the fold was born, I was told it by me, Mass, and we got 75,000 pairs of fold and she made 300 as a yearling and she's in training with Chad Brown and apparently going on well. So that's a big, that's a massive, um, a massive boost again for us that, that, that happened with a young mare. Her half-brother was a horse called Vince Bellarmy, who obviously has stood at Yeomanstown and has done very well. So um, that's like so much. We've got a filly then um, by Cable Bill, this filly out of the street crime mare. And then we bought a, a nice mare off um, the late Kevin Mercer called Nanty Go. And she was by Mark Vestim. And Mark Vestim crossed with Teofilio, had produced um, a very good horse in Hong Kong that had won about 14 million. So we bought her obviously to cover with Macedon. She's a lovely filly. And while she's. Um, She's an early June fold. She doesn't look it, and she's been very popular. So there's a nice draft of horses there, and um, and it's um, normally in the morning. I say you're really nervous, but this morning we're not nervous because we think we've got some lovely horses, and there's a great interest in people to buy them. You know. Thank you to a very chatty Richard Kent, who can get more words to the to the minute than I think just about anybody. Interestingly, just as I'm talking to you, a bit of news has dropped into my inbox. Advertise and Acclaim are to move to Manton Park Stud. There's a new venture set up by Martin Mead, the, the co-trainer with his son, Freddie, of the St. Ledger contender this week, Zekha Raya. Advertise and Acclaim are both Group 1 winners trained by the Meads of the um, Commonwealth Cup and the Prix La Forêt, respectively. They've been at the National Stud for three and four years, and they are now moving to Mead's own purpose-built stud. Uh, Anna Kersey of the National Stud added the National Stud's delight to have launched the careers of two stallions. They both have bright futures ahead. We wish them every success at Manton. So a bit of news from the bloodstock world there. Lee Moss says still with me and has got a tip for you. Well, I mean, one tip would be, Nick, if you're anywhere around the Goodwood area today, get yourself racing because we have an unusually strong Tuesday uh, card. Excellent affair at Newbury today. So, uh, Goodwood, they said in terms of the price of that's on offer, 325 grand races and a 100,000 contest for juveniles. I'm going to be going in the 340, the Royal Sussex Regiment Handicap, a two-miler. Take some getting on the soft ground there at Goodwood today. Miranda used to be a, a, a better horse than he is now, but I thought there were definite signs um, of a revival in his most recent start in the old Newton Cup at Haydock. He would have run in a more valuable race than this at Haydock on Saturday had ground conditions be deemed suitable. And I think he could return to winning ways in the 340 at Goodwood. Miranda is the team. Splendidly. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, please do pass the message on to all your friends and even people you don't like that much because they even might like this podcast. And if you could encourage them and you to uh, write us a review and a rating on any of your uh, favorite podcast platforms, that would be much appreciated. That was Tuesday, the 6th of September. Uh, marching on a pace into this glorious autumn and it sounds as though it's going to be a glorious autumn for homeless songs we'll see you tomorrow bye bye you've been listening to nick luck daily brought to you in association with fitzdares the racehorse owners association 
and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.